see you. Have our minds of tension and our heart's affection now, Lord, as we open the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So just a minute to say thank you um, on behalf of my family. Uh, it has been a hard couple weeks. Uh, it's hard to be away. And um, I just want to tell you, not only has it been a hard couple weeks, it's been a hard couple years for us. And I just want to tell you thank you as a congregation because you've given me and my family space uh, to be able to be away at a moment's notice. Uh, you've let me be out of the pulpit on Sundays. you let me be away on Wednesdays. You've given me time away from the office uh, to be with my family and to be with my dad and to care for them. Uh, the Lord gave us a great opportunity last Saturday uh, to preach my dad's funeral. I got to uh, clearly preach the gospel to my family, which was amazing. And uh, if you're, my family's like your family, we have folks that need the gospel in my family. And this was an excellent opportunity to do it. My dad's testimony of his life was a great witness to our family. So thank you for the chance to be away. Uh, William did a great job last week. Thank you so much for preaching as always. Always appreciate that. So over the course of this summer, in fits and starts, I've been focusing on just one idea, and that is this idea of defining moments with the Lord. These things that God brings our way from time to time, that once we encounter them, once we receive that revelation from Him, it sets the course of our life in a different direction. It doesn't happen all the time, but there are times that you'll sit in a sermon or there'll be a, a conversation you'll have with a, a believer over coffee or you'll hear a song on the radio. You'll open the Word of God one morning in your quiet time and it's like the Word of God just jumps off the pages to you. Or maybe you get to attend a conference or to go on a mission trip and it just becomes a defining moment for you and shapes your life in different ways. And we've been praying that God will continue to bring those into your life as members of our body of Christ, but also that this summer will continue to progress in those things because I think the Lord is continuing to shape our congregation for the things He has for us, the mission He wants us to undertake in the next couple months and years. And that means shaping us as individuals. We, we can't be changed as a church without as individuals embracing change. And so we're just asking the Lord, do a fresh work in our life. And one of the things we've been talking about is the importance of rooting our identity in what God says about us versus what the world or our friends or our family or anyone else says about us. And so we went all, back, all the way back to Genesis. You remember this a few weeks ago? We saw Adam and Eve in the garden, perfectly created before God, exactly how he intended human beings to be created and operate in this world. And this is what we saw of Adam and Eve, and this is what's true of us. One, they were created in the image of God. That of all God's creation, of all that he made, all the animals, everything else in the world, only one thing was created in the image of God, and that was human beings. We are able to reflect his character. We're able to have a relationship with him and interact with him. We're able to relate to him in a way that no other creation can. We're created in the image of God. Not just that, but we have the breath of God in us. And remember, God kneels down. He makes Adam out of the clay, but he also breathes the breath of life into him. And Genesis says when God did that, he became a living being, a completely different thing. And those two things tell us something that's important for us because the third thing is this, we were made for relationship with God. 
We weren't just created. He created us for a purpose. We were created in his image. We were given the breath of God so that we could have relationship with God. And the reason that's important is because God meant for us as human beings to find our identity outside of us, to look for things outside of us to define us. You know why he did that? Because he wants to be the one to define us. He wants to be the one to say, this is why life is meaningful. This is why you're valuable. This will give you purpose. This will fulfill you. This is what you should be about in the world. He is the one who desires to define our reality for us. And so we're always looking outside of us. But here's what the enemy does. Just as every time God does a good work, the enemy wants to come and twist it. The enemy comes in and he dangles other things in front of us for which we can define our lives. He shows us the media. He shows us athletes. He shows us money. He shows us fame. He shows us uh, intelligence or a degree or climbing a corporate ladder, whatever else it is. He says, listen, define your life by this. And this is what we learn from Genesis. Whatever you make your core identity affects every other identity. So if your core identity is I'm created in the image of God with the breath of God in me created for relationship with God, it's going to make me a better husband, a better father. It's going to make me a better neighbor, a better worker at Sneed Middle School. It's going to make me better. But if I take one of those other identities and I make it primary, I decide the most important thing about me is to be a mother. I'm going to throw my life into my children. Here's what will happen. That identity will poison everything else, including your relationship with the Lord. We can't afford to find our identity in anything other than what that core identity God's given us from the very creation of the world. So here's what the enemy does. He comes to us with three lies all the time to try to shake us off that identity. You remember back in Genesis 3, it was the same three lies all the way back in the garden. The serpent appears to Adam and Eve. He tempts them to eat the fruit from the tree they were forbidden from. And then he speaks three lies that we still hear today. The first was this. Uh, you'll not surely die if you eat that fruit. Translation, what God said isn't true. What God said about you is not true. If you eat that fruit, that, that's not true. God's just holding out on you. Second lie is this. What God has provided for you is not enough. You need more. Sure, there's all these other trees out there, but you need to be able to eat from that tree. That tree's good. You should be able to do that. What God's promised you is not enough. What he's provided for you is not enough. You need more, something else, something different. And here's the worst lie of them all. You can be like God. He told Adam and Eve, listen, here's why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because when you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And do you know he comes to us with those same three lies every single day of our life because they're the root of every temptation you'll face. That what God said is not true. That what God has provided is not enough. And you need more than that. That you can be God. So we have to learn how to walk out of that. We have to learn to reject that. We have to learn how to root ourselves in what the Word of God says. So we looked at Colossians chapter 2. Do you remember this passage? Paul was talking to this young group of believers, and he's challenging them to go back to the things they heard at the very beginning and to root themselves in them. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, he said this, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one deceives you by fine-sounding arguments. But he says, press on into the things of the Lord. He says, for all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Christ, and you have been given fullness in him. Listen to that beautiful picture. We have been given fullness in Christ. You have it right now. As a follower of Jesus, you have all the fullness of God in you. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, which means he's brought with him all the resources of God, all the power of God, all the knowledge of God. And as you need those things, he will make them available to you to accomplish his will. That's how we can live out of the fullness God has for us. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5 today, because what I want to do is I want to try to wrap up this series with a visual image that I hope will kind of burn it and sear it into our hearts and minds so that we'll have a reference point for what God has called us to do. Just about one year ago today, about a year and two weeks, for the very first time I preached on the mission and the vision God has given us a trinity. And over the course of this year, we've been trying to build that in little by little. You've noticed some changes. We've hired some staff. We've moved in some different directions. We've tried some different things because we're wanting to see this mission fulfilled. And it's very simple. The mission of God for Trinity is to make disciple makers who are committed to gathering for the preaching of the word and prayer, for worship and fellowship, and then scattering for ministry and service and the proclamation of the gospel from Western Florence to the ends of the earth. That's the mission God has given to us. And we're seeing that happen. We're seeing disciple makers step up and begin to take on new things and, and grow in their faith and own different areas of their life. It's been good. We've seen new ministries launch. We've seen people get plugged in in ways they hadn't so far. But I want to encapsulate that a little bit with this passage from Matthew chapter 5 because as Jesus is ministering to people, he preaches this amazing sermon from Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to go all the way down to verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one of the blue Bibles in the pews. You can follow along with me. Matthew chapter 5 is on page 1505. You can flip there. Jesus is preaching what is the longest recorded sermon of his that we have. It stretches out over Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And baby, it goes everywhere. He covers all the bases. He talks about money. He talks about fasting. He talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about how to pray and how not to pray. I mean, he covers the gambit. If you just read it, it takes about seven minutes to read. And he covers about 17 years worth of things you got to think about as a believer. That's who Jesus was. But I want to focus in on this part in Matthew chapter 5 because in reality, all those three chapters really cover one idea. What does it mean to be the people of God in the world? What does it mean to advance the kingdom of God and to be people that push that along? And so he starts with a visual to help them orient themselves to what it means to affect their culture. Matthew chapter 5, down to verse 13, he says this. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus takes two ideas that his original audience would have been very familiar with, but is a little bit different in our time. And so this is a good way to study the Bible. If you're new to learning the Bible, this is a good little technique you need to learn. The first is this. When we're trying to understand Scripture, we always start with how the first people that would have read or heard that teaching, how would they have understood it? Because if we understand how they would have received it, then it helps us know how to apply it to our lives. So when that first group of people heard Jesus say, you're the salt of the earth, they thought about salt a lot differently than you and I do, okay? We think about salt primarily in two ways. One, we think about enhancing the flavor of our food. Some of you are like, amen, absolutely, I love salt. Some of y'all put salt on watermelon. What are you doing, people? What are you doing? You put, there, David, what are you, man, pray for salt. Lord, just pray for David this morning. I mean, y'all people, you love salt. Or maybe when you think about salt, it's when you go to your annual physical and your doctor says, hey, let's, uh, let's cut back on the salt. Like, don't put on the watermelon. You, we think about it like those kind of things. It's seasoning for us, but for salt, it was life. It was life for that culture. Why? Because in that culture, Israel is primarily a desert culture. They have agricultural bearing to them, but salt was everything because salt had these amazing usages. The first thing was this. It preserved things. So when fishermen like Jesus' disciples would take fish out of the Sea of Galilee and they would put them up on the seashore, they would say to themselves, okay, of all these fish, how many do I think I can sell in the market today? And they would set those aside. And the ones that they thought they probably couldn't sell that day, they would set over to the other side, and they would take salt, and they would rub those fish down with salt because the salt would preserve the fish over long periods of time so that they could be sold later or they could be eaten later. It prevented decay from happening to those fish and they were able to preserve that meat in an age where there was no refrigeration, right? Remember the cute little story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? The boy comes with his two fish and his five loaves of bread. I got news for you. Those fish were salted. They were absolutely salted because he had to walk and travel, and that was in his lunchbox. I'm sure his mama put two little salted fish in there. That was just part of how you traveled and ate back then. Salt preserved things. It was life for them, but not just that. Salt also created thirst in that culture, which doesn't sound that important now, but you got to get this. In a desert culture, you can't wait until you're thirsty to drink. Because here's what I learned in Boy Scouts. This is one of the things I took away from Boy Scouts. I don't remember taking away a lot, but here's what I did learn. I learned that when you go out hiking or you play sports or whatever else it is, if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Did you know that? That by the time you're thirsty... You're already dehydrated. You have to drink before you're thirsty. So what they would do in this ancient culture, they would take salt and they would make it a part of their regular diet because having lots of salt in your body would make you thirsty before you were dehydrated. And it would make you drink all along and it kept you in a desert climate from being dehydrated. It had these amazing, important things in life. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, they would have thought that's a ridiculous statement, just like you think it's a ridiculous statement. 
but they did know what bad salt was. They did know what it was like when someone slipped them bad salt and sold it to them. Because in the area around the Jordan, you have the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan leaks down into the Dead Sea. You've probably heard of that before. And because there's no outlet, the water evaporates and there's salt everywhere. There's salt crystals all along. But it's impure salt because there are minerals in the Sea of Galilee at the bottom called gypsum, and it mixes with the salt. And if you don't take the salt and purify the salt back out, then the gypsum takes the flavor of the salt away, and it's really bitter. And what would happen from time to time is some, you know, sleazy salesman would bring in a little bit cheaper salt that he hadn't purified. And when they would take it in their house to cook it and they would taste it, they could taste the gypsum, they could taste the bitterness, they could taste it was bad salt. So you know what they did? You can't take salt and you can't throw it out in the garden because what happens if you pour salt on your garden? Nothing will ever grow again, right? Well, you can't use it to cook. You can't use it to preserve things. So they would just take it and throw it on the road to be trampled on. That was the only thing it was good for, traction in the mud outside their house. So Jesus is saying, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything but what? To be thrown out and trampled by men. They're like, yeah, I mean, absolutely, makes sense. So salt's different for them, right? You know what else is different for them? Light was different for them. You got tons of light in here today. But when the sun goes down, there's less light in here. But you know, it's amazing in our modern culture, unless you live way out in the docks, you still have a lot of light everywhere, even when it's dark. If I go to this parking lot, you come back at 1.30 this morning, this whole church is going to be lit up. There are lights out there. There are lights in our parking lot. There is plenty of light around, even in pitch dark. Unless the electricity goes out, we have lots of light available to us. Even in my bedroom at night when we're trying to go to sleep, I have electric alarm clock over to the side, and it gives off plenty of light. It actually has three settings of how bright I want it. We just got this new TV for our bedroom, and uh, whoever the genius was that decided uh, there's a little night light on the bottom of the television, and it stays on even when you turn the television off. So now we have like this strobe light in the middle of the night in our room that we're trying to adjust to. Whatever's going on there, that, that's the new reality in our bedroom now. But it's not even really dark in our bedroom. But back in the day, back in Jesus' time, dark was dark. Because all you had at night was you had the moon, or you had the stars, or you had whatever light fire could make for you, right? So you had a torch, or you had a candle, or you had something else that was out there. Dark was dark. And when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, they understood how important that was in their culture. You have no light in the dark. You got lots of problems. In fact, he even references it. Remember where he says this? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He's probably talking about Jerusalem. Probably. The city that was on the highest point in Israel. The city that as you approached, especially if you came at night, you could see all the way, miles away, because of the torches that were in Jerusalem that lit up the city all over the place. You could see it pitch dark, way away. Everybody knew what Jerusalem looked like at night. Anyone who had traveled there knew what it looked like at night. Light was key to the world. And now you get to take some notes. You ready? Get your bulletin out. Because I want you to write some few things down. And I want you to go back and think and study on these this week. And the first thing is this. Both salt and light are transformative to the environments in which they're brought to bear. 
both salt and light are transformative to the environments that you bring them to bear in. I think that's what Jesus was really wanting to communicate. Sure, you can take all the analogies of preserving culture and enhancing culture and doing those things. But in reality, here's what Jesus says. My people go in and they transform environments. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Go out and transform environments just like salt transforms things, just like light does. But since salt and light don't really have the same bang for the buck in our modern culture as it did back then, I'm going to try to bring it up into the modern sense a little bit. And let's talk about thermostats and thermometers, okay? Thermostats and thermometers. Young people, I uh, unearthed this ancient artifact uh, in, uh, my, at my dad's house a few years ago. This is a thermometer. And if you're not used to what that is, it's probably because now when you go to the doctor, they take this little thing, right, Roberto, and they just scan it across your head. It's like Starship Enterprise, right? I mean, they just run it right across your forehead, gives you your temperature. Uh, you missed out on the days of having a glass tube stuck in your mouth and your armpit and all that kind of stuff and getting your temperature that way. Now you just have it breezed across your forehead. But this is a thermometer in here, and what it does is there's a glass tube, and it has mercury in it, and mercury reacts to heat and cold. So with heat, it expands very quickly, and with cold, it contracts very quickly. And they know to put a certain amount of mercury in that glass tube, and when it gets warm, it expands and forces that mercury up, and then you put your little lines here because you calibrate it that way. And this says right here, even though this is an ancient artifact, it says that it is 71 degrees in here. And I think that was our intention. I checked the thermostats this morning. It was 71 degrees, even at this moment, okay? A thermostat reacts to the environment around it. That's what a thermostat does. I'm sorry, thermometer, sorry. That's why I keep you around. A thermometer is affected by the environment around it. So if there's 70 degrees in this room, what's my thermometer going to register? 70 degrees. It's just how it works. It is affected by the environment around it. Now, a thermostat is a little bit different. A thermostat has a thermometer inside of it so it can register the temperature, but then a, a thermostat does something else. A thermostat reacts to the environment around it by affecting it. Thermostat reacts to the environment by affecting it. So the thermometer inside this thermostat, when it gets to the number that we set it on, the thermostat tells our air conditioning unit to start cooling or our heat to start heating. Now, in this building, I counted, I counted 10 thermostats. That's probably about right. We've got two and two, and there are two up there. And then there's one over here, which I really like this one because it gets hot up here. So this is the one that regulates the stage. And then there's one I know in the choir room. There's a couple in the narthex when you go outside. And we set all of them this morning, Scott, I think to 70. That I looked. I think it was 70. When each of them registers 70, it turns the air on. And some of your layers are like, if you want to go up, it's okay. If you want to go a little bit higher than 70, it's okay. But it turns the air on, and it regulates this room. Thermometers react to the room. They're affected by the room thermostats affect the room. Do you get the difference? In my time as pastor, this is what I've seen. I've run across thermometer Christians, and I've run across thermostat Christians. 
And as we are going to make disciple makers of Jesus, here's our goal. Our goal is to make thermostat Christians. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, in my experience when I was young in my faith and when I was growing in my faith, here's what was true of me and that I've seen of of a lot of us. When we're young in our faith, we are affected by the spiritual temperature of what's going on around us. So when we walk into a worship service, if the Spirit of God's moving, then what happens? I I feel elated in my walk. I feel closer to the Lord. It's all going well. I'm affected by the environment around us. But maybe if I come to church one Sunday and I'm just, I don't connect with the sermon, I don't connect with the music or whoever's speaking or whatever else it is, then I, I don't get that same effect. I don't get that same feeling, right? And here's what's even harder. We'll leave on Sunday morning and we'll go into our workplace on Monday and the environment in that place is nowhere near what was going on on Sunday morning. And so what happens is our spiritual temperature drops because we're affected by the environment around us. But what we're calling ourselves to as a congregation is to be disciple makers. To learn how to be spiritual thermostats that can go into environments that can say the environment of this place is not what it should be and that we can actually take action through the Holy Spirit and transform the environment we're in whether it's in a worship service, whether it's at Sneed Middle School, whether it's at IBM, whether it's at your neighborhood pool party, whatever else it is, we want to become people who the Holy Spirit can use to transform environments for the kingdom of God. Spiritual thermostats. Here's one of my greatest joys from working with our staff. We have a staff of thermostats. We have a staff of people. I'm amazed how they can walk into environments And the Holy Spirit can use them to create environments. You get a chance to experience that almost every Sunday morning. William comes up here on a piano. I've never seen anyone. I'll be completely honest. I'm not tuning your horn, William. I'm just telling you, like for me, what it is. Listen, I've never seen anyone that can sit down on a piano by himself, can start to worship the Lord, and I sense that the spiritual environment changes. That's just my experience with you, William. Praise God for that. I mean, glory to God for that. But listen, it makes it easy to work on a staff like that. I mean, it makes it super easy because when you walk into a staff meeting and everyone in that room is a thermostat and we're continuing together to change the spiritual environment, it's easy to talk and to pray and to solve problems and to plan. That's the good stuff. But you know what it's like to be in family dynamics. You know what it's like to be in work dynamics. You know what it's like sometimes, unfortunately, to be in church dynamics where the spiritual temperature of the room is off. It's off. And you can't really put your finger on it, but you know when it's right and you know when it's not. We want to be people who God can use to bring the spiritual temperature to where he wants it. Everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. And that takes time. It takes time. It takes growth. It takes empowerment by the Holy Spirit. It takes attention to the Lord, but we can become that. So I want to challenge us with some thermostat realities, just four things that will help us kind of wrap our mind around this idea today that will help us move from being spiritual thermometers to spiritual thermostats. The first is this. It's the Holy Spirit working through us that affects our environments. I want to say this to you. 
If God uses you as a spiritual thermostat to transform an environment, it is the Holy Spirit working through you. It is not your, first, your force of personality. It's not how articulate you are in your speaking. It's not how strong you are, how smart you are. It's not your finances. It's not your skill set. Listen to me. God changes environments through the Holy Spirit, and he uses people to do it. He uses people to do it. So that's why I can't give, I can't give credit to William. I have to give credit to the Lord, because without the Holy Spirit, William would be nothing. He'd be nothing. But with the Holy Spirit at work, the Lord can use him. And others can benefit. Second thing is this. His movement through you will always be in proportion to his freedom to work in you. Listen to me. If you want to be transformed, you want to grow into a thermostat in which you can affect the spiritual temperature of your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, your kids' lives, whatever else it is, it's going to take the Holy Spirit working through you, and He will work through you in proportion to the freedom He has to work in you. He doesn't work through you first. He works in you first. You got me? If you want humility to be birthed into your family, the Holy Spirit has to build humility in you. Are you with me? You want peace birthed into your family? He's got to birth peace into you first. If you want forgiveness birthed into your family, then he has to do a work of forgiving others in your heart too. Barring a miracle, and he's the Holy Spirit, so he does miracles all the time. That's kind of his wheelhouse. But barring a miracle... The Holy Spirit doesn't do through people what he has not already done in people. In fact, that's why we call them miracles, because they are out of the order when he does it. Sometimes he does it, but it's out of the order when he does that. Normally his pattern is I do the work in Matt first, and then it bursts work in whoever else around me. It's the only way that things are transformed through us. Third thing is this. You've got to get this. The Holy Spirit means to send you into environments that need transformation. you got to get this. It is so awesome to be in a room with a whole bunch of thermostats, and we've spiritually created an environment. That is so fun. It's amazing. You get to worship, the Lord's moving, all that stuff. But there are so many more environments that are devoid of the things of God, devoid of the Holy Spirit, devoid of the kingdom of God. And God wants those environments to be changed. So you know how he does it? He sends you and you and you, and he sends you there. And he sends you to transform the environment through. That is so hard, isn't it? Man, it is so hard. I was talking to one of my friends just this week. We were talking about how hard it is to minister to our family because I don't know about you. I'm 45 years old, but I can step into a, a room with my family and I feel nine years old all over again. I feel nine years old. I feel like they look at me like they looked at me when I was nine years old. And they feel like I'm goofy, like I wasn't nine years old. I'm still a little goofy now, but I've grown a little bit out of it. 
But they still look at me as a nine-year-old, and they still listen to my advice like I'm a nine-year-old. And you know the only way that that changes is if the Holy Spirit does a work through you. And here's what happens. They'll begin to see he is different. He doesn't talk the same. He doesn't think the same. He's not afraid like I'm afraid. He doesn't use his money like he does. His marriage is thriving. His kids are thriving. Things are okay. And when they're not, he still seems to have peace and stability. Only the Holy Spirit can transform you into that kind of person. And that's when our witness with our family gets good. We're so worried about how do I verbally witness to my family? What do I don't say the right thing? Don't worry about saying the right thing. Worry about being the right kind of person. And then if we say to ourselves, well, I'm not the right kind of person right now. Listen, don't underestimate what the Holy Spirit can do in your life in two years. What he could do in five years. What he could do in ten years. Don't underestimate what he could do through your children and through your parents in a matter of weeks and months. And I'll tell you this. When they experience the reality of what's happening now, they will forget who you were. In fact, who you were will become a contrast for the gospel. They'll be able to see who you were, and they'll be able to see who you are, and that's the best witness you can get. That's the best witness you can get. The best thing of this entire thing with my dad, the best thing was getting to preach his funeral. And it was so amazing because I got to stand in that pulpit and I got to say, you know who my dad was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But he changed. And gradually, as the Lord got a hold of his life, he was different. He was a different man when he died than when we grew up together. And I could say that because they had seen the changes they had seen the testimony they had seen that and i got the chance just to share the gospel with my family and say here is why the change was there he didn't just got wiser he got more holy god used him god changed him god wants to send you into environments he wants to send you in environments he's asking some of you to get uncomfortable he's calling some of you to wrestle with the job that you're at right now And the job that you're at right now is really comfortable, but he's calling you to a place that's much less comfortable. And you're not really jazzed about that because you really like the place you're at. It's really comfortable. But Jesus has an environment he needs to transform, and he's calling you to do it. Be courageous. Be courageous in obeying. He has plans for you. And the last thing is this. If the Holy Spirit means to send us into environments that need transformation, this requires a commitment to allow Him to transform you daily. If He means to send you somewhere to transform an, avi- uh, to transform an environment, you have to be transformed by Him daily. Because if not, guess what will happen? The environment will transform you. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen people on fire for the Lord and move into environments where they don't stay connected with Him. And the environment transforms them. For some of us, under the sound of my voice, you know what I'm talking about because even as I say this, you understand the environments I've been in have begun to transform me. And I am not on fire for the Lord like I used to be. I'm not passionate about the things of the Lord. Obedience isn't as important as it used to be. And and that's ringing true in your heart and your mind this morning. And God's calling you back. He's calling you to repentance in that.
He's calling you to come back and say, listen, I want to reorder and reprioritize those things again. I want to be that person again. And you know what? He'll restore you. He's so gracious. He's so good. He will restore you. He'll do those things for you. So this morning, as our praise teams come, and as they lead us in the last song, my question is, just where are you at? Just an honest assessment of your life. That, that's where change really happens, is being honest with ourselves and saying, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my spirit? Am I pursuing the Lord like I used to? Am I, am I chasing after the things of God? Is the word of God as rich and as fresh in my life as it used to be? Is the, is the church the priority it used to be for me? The things of God, the priority it used to be for me? And if not, this is the time to let the Holy Spirit of God do that work of revitalization, revival in our heart. This is the chance for him to do that. So let's respond to him in any way that he leads us this morning. Let's stand together. Let's respond.